and I shine the light on down on the surface of the wine. You know, I've done this a million times before and after, and it didn't look like wine. Because a flashlight onto red wine, it looks dark, like dark liquid. This yeah. looked kind of gray, kind of hazy and gray, kind of whitish. Went to the next tank, looked the same. Next tank looked the same. I had seven of these partial tanks. And uh, I said, man, I don't know what that, that is. So I hooked up a hose and a pump and I racked the wine from one tank to an empty tank to get it down so I could see up close and personal what was that, what was going on in that top layer. And it was about six or eight inches of mold. You're listening to Everyday Food and Wine, the show about innovators, creators, and experts in the fields of food and wine. I'm Sarah Faraday, and on today's episode, I sit down with Doug Schaefer. Doug is a James Beard Award recipient, the author of the book A Vineyard in Napa, and president of Schaefer Vineyards. Doug's father, John, the founder of Schaefer Vineyards, was an early visionary for Napa Valley Hillside Vineyards. Schaefer Vineyards is an iconic family-owned winery named one of the top 25 vineyards in the world by wine publication Wine and Spirits and was named one of the world's greatest wineries by wine critic Robert Parker. But good things can take time and occasionally start off a little bumpy. John, a former Army Air Corps B-24 pilot during World War II, turned highly successful businessman for the Scott Forthman Publishing Company in Chicago, which most people know for their Dick and Jane basic readers, decided it was time to leave Chicago and take the family to Napa to pursue a career in wine. John moved the family on a prayer and a dream, but having had no prior farming experience, things weren't always so smooth sailing. Today, we'll learn how Doug's father, John, and the Schaefers were able to turn trial into the true definition of triumph. Doug, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks, Sarah. Great to be on. Absolutely. So I wanted to start off talking a little bit about maybe what you went through your mind when your father decided to leave a incredibly successful career in Chicago and move to Stag's Leap District in Napa Valley with no experience in winemaking, but to follow his dreams. Uh, it, <laughs> it was crazy. Um, I was 17 years old. I was a junior in high school in a suburban Chicago. And uh one night in October of 72, we're sitting around the dinner table and uh, dad, my little brother and myself and mom and dad, and dad says, well, in January, three, three or four months, we're moving to Napa, we're moving to California. And my brother and I were like, what? <laughs> Actually, we weren't, well, we knew that something was going on. We knew he'd been going out to California a few times and looking around, but you know, nothing concrete. So it was, it was a big surprise. And, uh, he said something about Napa Valley, which didn't register at all uh, with any of us. Uh, but basically, all I heard was California. And to be honest, if I take myself back to being seven, 17-year-old boy in Chicago, California meant, you know, USC cheerleaders and bikinis <laughs> and beach and surfboards and the Beach Boys. Um, so it was kind of... Um, it was kind of exciting. And uh, we had three or four months, which went by really quickly. And uh, I had a lot of, I grew up there in that town we lived in. And um, 
but it was it was uh, bittersweet. A lot of longtime friends. You know, when you're 17, everything is uh, very visceral right there. And uh, so it was tough to say goodbye to friends, but also at the same time, it was really exciting. And uh, because my parents were really jazzed and that was infectious. So Brad and I, uh, I think, got caught up in it and it was a lot of fun. And then we had this crazy trip in mid-January of 73, driving dad, my brother, and our Labrador dog, uh, drove the station wagon from Chicago to the Napa Valley. Mom took a plane, uh, but it was the middle of winter, and I can I just got my license a year before, and so you know, Dad wanted to make tracks, as it were. So I remember driving like in the middle of Nebraska, at, you know, eleven at night in a snowstorm, a, a whiteout snowstorm, you know, in the middle of nowhere, you know, Highway eighty, <laughs> no traffic, thinking, thinking. We're gonna die out here. <laughs> so, oh. so, uh, but we made it. You know, it took two or two and a half days, and uh, pulled into Napa Valley on a Saturday in third week in January. It was 60, 65 degrees. Everything was vibrant green, and it was bright, sunny day. Absolutely gorgeous. And we pulled into this place. And it was like. Oh my gosh! I've never seen anything so beautiful in my life. You know, after coming from gray, dreary, black and white Chicago in the winter, so it was pretty wild. But we did it. Had you ever made a trip out to California, or did your family did they talk about winemaking at all prior to this, or was it just no, a completely fresh start? I think we'd come out uh, like a year before, six months before, on vacation to San Francisco because I remember doing the uh, cable cars and. Ghirardelli's chocolate sundae thing and uh, just stayed in San Francisco. And I remember during that trip, I remember dad took off for a couple days. <laughs> so I think he was up here looking at property. But no, there was no talk about making wine. It was all about, um, we're going to go out and we're going to grow grapes. I'm going to be a grape grower. So I, the wine acts, the wine thing never, I don't recall ever being mentioned. And uh, he was just going to come out and be a farmer and semi-retire. And um that was it. And by the way, you know, and wine was not something that I grew up with or grew up with around the table. Uh, it was bourbon and beer and cocktails. And uh, I think there was a stray bottle of uh, Matus or Lancers once in a while, but uh, they were not wine drinkers at all. Wow. So what was the first wine that Schaefer made? And were there any issues then with no background in it? Because this is a completely fresh start. Well, it was totally fresh. So we got out here in 73, and what he did, there was a, the existing vineyard was uh, about 30 acres of 60-year-old grapevines, Chenin Blanc, Barbera, Carignan, Zinfandel, old, old vineyards. So what he did for three or four or five years was replant this vineyard, and he also started adding uh, some hillside property, property or land that had not been planted. So he cleared some trees, and that was our first... Uh, first couple of hillside blocks. And so all this was being done in the years of 73 through 77, 78. And uh, in 78, he had his first crop of, I do remember him making some homemade wine in 77. So he was selling, growing grapes and selling them to other wineries, mostly to the, what was called the Napa Valley Co-op. There's a co-op winery up in St. Helena which is where most of the growers sold their grapes to. And they, the co-op basically made 
Uh, this is oversimplifying, but basically made a tank of white wine and a tank of red wine, big tanks, and sold that juice or sold that wine to Gallo down in Stockton because Gallo wanted North Coast wines because it had higher acidity. So using their blending. So that's back in those days, that's where most of the grapes went to. But uh, his, uh, so in 77, he made some homemade wine because I remember being home. Where was I? I was in college. I remember being home and him dragging me down to the basement with a couple of demijohns of wine and making me taste it. It was okay. It wasn't great. And uh, it was from a partial crop off this one hillside vineyard. And then in 78, he had his first, um, decent crop. And at that point he had the wine bug. You know, at, I had been at college by then, so I didn't really see the wine bug kick in, but, uh, he, uh, took some, took some of the crop off that hillside block. It was called the upper seven. And we, he, I think he took it up to the original round hill winery up in, uh, St. Helena and they custom crushed it and they made a thousand cases of a 1978 Cabernet off our hillside, which was the, the same block that we use today in Hillside Select with some other, other blocks here too. So that was the granddaddy of Hillside Select, the 78 Cab. That's amazing. So you ended up, you, you quickly joined your father in winemaking process just 18 months after the first vintage. What was that like? And did you have any sort of formal winemaking education or mentors in the Valley? Well, I, um, it wasn't quite that quickly. I joined him 18 months after he started selling that 78 cab, which was in 1981. So he aged it. And, uh, in 1980, he built the winery um, 81, he released that wine. And while he was doing that, my path, parallel path was I went to UC Davis for, um, and studied viticulture and semiology. Um, I graduated in 78. Um, then I got a, I wanted to teach school. So I got a teaching credential that took a year. And I went down to Tucson, Arizona. I taught junior high school for two years, uh, which I loved but also realized I wasn't going to change the world. So um, decided to come back to the grape wine industry. And I'll never forget, uh, funny story, I was home for Christmas, my second year of teaching, and I told Dad, I said, hey, I'm thinking of leaving teaching and coming back to the grape and wine business. And this was in, uh, I think this was Christmas of 80 or 81. And uh, his first comment was, and he had a winery going at that point, he had another winemaker, and he said, well, I don't have a job for you, <laughs> and, and which, totally su- which totally surprised me because I wasn't, I wasn't even thinking about that. So my quick retort was, oh, I don't want to work for you anyway, so no big deal. He says, fine, come on back. So, so I came back and uh, got a job in the cellar at a place called Lake Spring Winery as uh, I got the role of assistant winemaker. So it, it was a two-man operation. So Basically, I was the seller grunt. So you, to make a seller grunt feel good, you, you give him a title of assistant winemaker. So <laughs> I, worked with a, I worked with a guy named Randy Mason uh, for a, t- a couple years at Lake Spring. And uh, he was uh, still to this day a very, very good friend. And he was, my, he was a mentor. He really taught me how to work a seller, logistics, uh, racking barrels, moving wine, ordering bottling supplies, hot wiring a forklift, um, all that kind of hands-on stuff that you, that they don't teach in school. So he was a big, big help to me. And um, then in, uh, let's see, it was late 82, early 83, 
dad came to me because his winemaker had some personal issues and had to move on. So dad said, uh, come be my winemaker. And I said, no. He said, what do you mean? I said, what do you mean? No. Uh, that's what he said. What do you mean? No. And I said, I know enough to know I don't know how to do this yet. And, wow. and um, to tell you the truth, I was right. However, he was very persuasive and he talked me into coming over and, you know, we had a consultant helping us and all that. But uh, um, he was cute because he said, look, I got a problem. I'm going to go out and try to find a winemaker. And if I get anybody who's who's has their head on straight, they're going to know that you're around. It's a small valley. You know, you're in the cellar over at Lake Spring and, you know, I could me, Doug could be coming in to be winemaker someday. So who's going to take this winemaking job? So he did have a good point. But, uh, so I jumped on board in 83 and, um, we started trying to figure it out. Crazy time. How how did those first years go? Was it a lot of just baptism by fire trying to figure it out? I mean, you had a little bit of a background in winemaking. What was that like for you to just kind of jump in feet first? Well, um, it was uh, definitely trial by fire. So um, but, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. The first day, the first day at work, I uh, it was January of '73, winter time, slow, and uh, I had a lot of. I'm sorry, not '73, '83, '83, and I had. Uh, I thought, well, I better go check all these tanks that have are partially filled to make sure the gallons add up to what my predecessor had left the records. And I went out and unscrewed the top of a tank, you know, with a flashlight and a tape measure. That's how you measure the gallons, how far down the wine is. And I shined the light on down on the surface of the wine. You know, I've done this a million times before and after, and it didn't look like wine. It, cause a flashlight onto red wine, it looks dark, like dark liquid. This looked yeah. kind of kind of gray, kind of hazy and gray, kind of whitish. I went to the next tank, looked the same. Next tank looked the same. I had seven of these partial tanks. And uh, I said, man, I don't know what that, that is. So I hooked up a hose and a pump, and I racked the wine from one tank to an empty tank to get it down so I could see up close and personal what was, that, what was going on in that top layer. And it was about six or eight inches of mold growing oh, on no. top of the wine. And I was like, oh, my God. And I, that was, <laughs> that was my first day. And, uh, oh, no. and, uh, you know, I, I could listen, I could, I could tell you stories. I could take five hours and tell you stories, but that was the first one. And we had, you know, Britannomyces rampant. I mean, it was a mess and I had limited experience. I will credit my good friend, Randy Mason, who's, who was working two miles away at his place where I left him and, uh, bless his heart. You know, Randy was probably coming over here probably four or five times a week, you know, because I'd call him up and say, come look at this, come look at this. And all I remember him saying, this guy had made wine for like 20 years at that point. He'd come, he'd come over, he'd, I'd show him something. He said, man, never seen this one before. So it was, <laughs> um, it was wild. And, um, but we figured it out. And um, a year later, I hired Elias Fernandez right out of UC Davis as my as my assistant winemaker, and uh, we continued to try to figure out how to do it. And it took us um, it took us a while, but after seven or eight years, we started making some really really pretty wines. So it's quite a Love quite it. a ride. 
I love it. And definitely want to dive into you hiring Elias in just in just a few questions. But I wanted to ask, there used to be Zinfandel pairing or Zinfandel plantings at Schaefer. Uh, can you share the reason that you guys decided to rip them out and plant more traditional Bordeaux varietals in 1982? Sure, that's easy. Um, so dad, at that point, I was 82. I was still at Lake Spring. Um, and he, dad had planted on this ranch. He had Chardonnay, Cabernet, and Zinfandel. And over at Lake Spring, we were making Merlot. Now, at 81, 82, very, very few people were making a varietal Merlot. It was just usually used to blend with Cabernet. And so I'm making this Merlot with Randy at Lake Spring, and it's just gorgeous fruit. And so, you know, I'd see, you know, I'd see dad all the time, you know, coming and going. I could start telling him about this Merlot and I'd bring him barrel samples and said, isn't this delicious? He goes, yeah, that's really good. And, uh, I kind of, let's see, let's see But then all of a sudden within that six months, I, I left Lake Spring and started working at Schaefer and, and, uh, let's see, I, I'd inherited some Zinfandel that was here in the cellar wasn't very good. Um, I crushed one year's worth, and it was just a really tough grape to deal with, high acid, high tannin. And um, I talked Dad into it. I said, I think we should uh, – I don't know if I can't remember if I talked him into it. It was just kind of a joint decision because Zinfandel was – it was okay, but it wasn't great. And we were really excited about Merlot. So I said, come on, let's try this new thing. And, and he was all in. So we ripped out the Zin and put in Merlot and – and Merlot became a wonderful, wonderful grape and wine for us for many years. It's amazing. So most wineries label their flagship wine as like a private reserve or a reserve. Why Hillside Select? And how does this area stand out against other parts of your vineyard? Well, we did have a reserve. We had a, one year, we had uh, the 82 cab. There was, when I got here, the 82s were all in, in barrel or tanks, and uh, there was one lot that was really, really good. It came from the Sunspot Vineyard right behind the winery, a hillside block. And I went to Dad and I said, because at that point he, is, he had started to buy some cab from a few other growers besides our own grapes. I said, man, Dad, this, this Sunspot tank is so good. Let's keep it separate. We'll call it reserve. So we did it. So we had a reserve cab in 82 along with our, other, our regular cab. And, uh, and then I'm out on the road, we're out on the road selling it. And everyone always says, well, why is it reserve? So you have to tell the story. Well, we have hillside grapes and we pick the best blocks and blah, 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 blah. So I was after trying to find a name that could be distinctive and hopefully answer that question, why is it reserve, with its own description or, this, or the, the actual name itself. So Hillside Select was born. At that point, when we are 83, we, we dubbed it Hillside Select. And it's usually, we've got uh, about nine or 10 different blocks of Cabernet on this home ranch. The whole ranch is about 55 acres here in Sags Leap District. And what we do with Hillside Select is basically pick select the best Cabernet from the various blocks and put that blend together every year. So it's a... Um, a selection of the best fruit each year is the, the story behind it. I love that. That's so true. You do wonder what the story is behind the specific reserve blends and Hillside Select. It does, it does say it in and of itself. It does. And uh, after, gosh, 30 plus years or 40 years, it's uh, 
people know it and people know it for that as that name, which is, which has been great. Absolutely. So going back to when you were talking about bringing on Elias Fernandez in 1984, um, bring him on as an, as he was the assistant winemaker that you brought him on at the time, right? Yes. Yeah, that's and correct. N- now he's the head winemaker for well over a decade. What set Elias apart for you to bring him on? Uh, his grades. <laughs> I- <laughs> I was, uh, I'd been here a year. I was still knee deep in uh, a fire drill every week. I need someone to help me out. I, you know, I need a cellar rat slash assistant winemaker. Um, I was young. I didn't really know my way around the industry that well. So I just called up the enology department at UC Davis. And I said, Hey, you guys got like a bulletin board so I can put up like a, you know, job available thing. They said, sure. So I, whoever I talked to said, here, put this down, you know, job available, assistant winemaker, Schaefer Vineyards, call this number. So Elias calls us up. Uh, and it was, I think it was February, March of 84. And uh, he shows up and uh, he was just about to graduate. He's graduating after winter quarter at Davis and uh, he was looking for a job. And uh He'd grown up in St. Helena. He'd worked a couple summers at Louis Martini Winery. He did an internship at Cuvisson. Um, nice guy. And I looked, then I looked at his transcript. That's all he had. And we took the same classes, but five years apart. And, you know, organic chem, he got an A. I got a B minus. You know, physics. <laughs> physics, he got an A. I took it past no pass. Remember pass, no pass? You know, that's what you do when you're having trouble. Uh, it's like, yeah. the, I go, this kid's smarter than I am. I'm going to hire him. So I hired him. And, uh, and uh, that was in March of 84. And uh, we've been making wine together for over 30 years. I love cool. it. It's pretty cool. Very cool. Very cool. And uh, definitely an amazing decision. I'm I'm sure like with anything else that there's, you know, we talk a little bit about the learning curve and the mold on the wine when you first started. Can you talk about some of the growing pains in the winemaking process? And I also know that you made a really key decision to stop sterile filtration, which had a significant a significantly positive impact. What is sterile filtration and how did that change the quality of the wines you were producing? Well, we were uh, sterile filtering wines and and basically sterile filtration means uh, you're going through a really tight filter, um, uh, not to be too techy, but 0.45 micron uh, is that tight of filter, which is really, really tight. And what that does is that gets out um, bacteria, yeast, anything like that, anything that could grow and spoil a wine. And the reason we were doing that is because we had some issues. We had some issues with Britannomyces, which is spoilage yeast, um, and getting that under control. You didn't want that in your bottle, so in the bottle, because it can grow and, and give you off odors. So you want to filter that out. Um, I also had some issues with uh, some other quality issues where I actually had a couple of years worth of wine. Well, not a couple of years worth, but about, let's see, it was about 6,000 cases, two different wines back in the 80s. I actually had to rebottle. Now, rebottling is is exactly what it sounds like. It means you pull the corks and dump the wine back into a tank and fix the issue and then rebottle it again. And wow. Yeah, it's, it's uh, a lot it's, of work. It's a life. It's a 
it's truly a life-changing moment. And every time, <laughs> and all these things that happen, you know, when the refrigeration blows up in the, uh, or no, the, the, the circulating pump for the refrigeration system goes down on Labor Day weekend when it's 100 degrees, and you don't have one on the shelf, and you can't get one because they're made in Germany or something like that. You, you get through that, and then when the dust settles, you ask yourself, gee, you know, ask yourself, you say, you know, I don't want to live through that again. What should I do to keep that from happening? It's, called, it's like preventative maintenance. So what do you do? <laughs> you go out and you buy a spare pump and put it on the shelf. In fact, in fact, we have two of them. <laughs> um, you know, your forklift you know, goes down at harvest. You know, well, maybe we should have a spare forklift. You know, we could always use it different times of the year. Th- things like that. So filtration for me, because at the time I was winemaker, but Elias and I were tight from the beginning. We, we kind of did everything super, super together on everything. Uh, I was like, man, I don't want to rebottle a wine again. And I don't want to have this Britannomyces thing again. How can I, you know, how can I save my, you know, how can I have, how can I sleep at night? I've got to have security. So sterile filtering took care of that because you're getting all the bacteria out, all the spoilage yeast out. You know, that's going to be great. Now, the downside on sterile filtering, people argue, is that it can strip the wine. The wine won't be, could not be as good or flavorful. You'll strip some of the flavors. And um, I think that's true. In other words, you're beating it up more than you need to. But at that time, Sarah, man, I was like, <laughs> you know, I don't want to have to rebottle a wine again. <laughs> and uh, so I kind of went all in on sterile filtration because I was pretty damn scared. And um, then as we got our act together with winemaking, learned more, and actually I'll credit Elias on this one. He pushed, he pushed us big time to get away from sterile filtering, but it took a while. And um, I can't remember when we got away from it. It's probably, I think, in the early 90s. Um, we were just able to be more confident with our winemaking and, and the, uh, the health of the wine when it was ready to bottle to know that we could back off on sterile filtering and do, do more of a, a lighter filtration, a polished filtration, which the wine was going to be stable and secure, but we weren't going to strip it as much as the sterile would. would. So that's the move we, went, we made. That's great. Pain avoidance is definitely a very strong motivator. You bet. <laughs> <laughs> so you pioneered something very crucial in your district and helped designate stag sleep as an AVA. What is an AVA and how would you describe the maybe specific characteristics of stag sleep versus some of the others like Rutherford or Oakville? Right. Um, actually, we've got to give that credit to my dad. He was the, uh, he was the, the man who really spearheaded the whole stag sleep movement. I was at the time that happened. This was in the late eighties. I was, I was, I was putting out fires in the cellar, but uh, he got together with some neighbors: um, Bernard Porte, Claude Duval, Dick Steltzner, Steltzner. Um, and uh, what happens is you apply to the federal government for an AVA, which is stands for American Viticultural Area. So, for example, Napa Napa Valley is an AVA, and what you can do is you can apply for uh, uh, an AVA that's uh, smaller in size. And they, it's handled by the feds, and they look at, uh, you know, climate and geography, location, trying to, you, you, the, the goal is to say 
to the feds. Um, we have a special spot. It's unique. It's unique for these reasons. And we'd like to have this be designated as an ABA. So we went through the process, got the approval. And what it means is if you have a wine where it's 85% or more of the grapes come from that particular AVA, for example, Stag's Leap District, you can put Stag's Leap District on the label. And so what the purpose of that is to for the consumer to know that, gee, this Cabernet, it's not just from Napa Valley, but it's from the Stag's Leap District. It's from that specific area or sub-appellation of the Napa Valley. And if it's got Oakville on it, they'll know those grapes came from the Oakville area. And it's... Um, you, you, it can be challenging to say, gee, I can. T- someone can taste six different Cabernets from six different AVAs and identify them. I think that would be pretty difficult. However, a lot of times you can have some general characteristics. Stag's Leap District, uh, they talk about Cabernets or red grapes, red wines from this area being having softer tannins, um, rich fruit, just a little softer tannins, a little more velvety texture, if you will. Uh, if you go up to Howl Mountain, um, which is up towards Angwin. That's a great AVA, but those wines are very characteristic. They're very dark, and they have a, a, a very strong, delicious tannin, but there's just a different animal. It's a little more, uh, if I'm going to use the word, uh, kind of more briary, brawny in a, in a good way, just different than Stag's Leap, for example. Oakville yeah. and Rutherford, same type of thing. You've got some c- different characteristics, but it's very general because you've got winemaking that comes into play and what type of barrels winemakers might use, that type of thing. So each AVA has to have its own distinct characteristics or maybe terroir that comes through it? Is well, I think right? it's, yeah, th- there's, it's, it's, and that's terroir. That's so tough to define and to regulate. <laughs> I mean, that's why these, when they, they approve these boundaries for the ABA, it's kind of like all over the park. And, uh, in our experience, we realized that the feds really liked, uh, you know, things like rivers, things like s- streets, <laughs> you know, highways, <laughs> okay. you know, uh, you know, that type of thing, because I mean, let's say you've got, uh, Yountville Crossroad, which is the northern end of the Stag's Leap District. Well, some guy's got a vineyard on the south side of the crossroad. He's in the district. And some gal's got a vineyard on the other side of the crossroad on the north side. And she's not in the district. I mean, what's fair? So it can be a little <laughs> bit political. And uh, uh, there's through the years, there's been some probably some contention on some of this stuff. But I think that it kind of also comes down to if, if you think there's a perceived value and if an AVA, so I mean, in other words, was two things going on. One is the, just the communication that these grapes came from this area. If, if, if one is a really a, you know, a consumer and connoisseur of Cabernets and or other red wines want to know that type of thing, they can look for it. But also sometimes there might be a perceived higher value in one appellation versus another. But I've found over the years that's not as big a deal. It's more really what's the quality of each particular winery is. And uh, that yeah. seems to drive that boat more than AVA, I think. Definitely. So I believe you, it's so fascinating to me, the number of hundred point wines that's, Schaefer has has 
earned. I mean, I believe your first 100 point vintage was in 2001, but you were producing first growth wines throughout the 90s. What did earning the 100 points, essentially meaning the perfect wine from Robert Parker, the most renowned wine critic, do for Schaefer? Oh, boy, points. I'm not, <laughs> I've never really been a point guy. Um, you know, because if, you, if you're a point guy, you know, you, you live with them and you die with them. You know what I mean? Um, sure. Uh, and I learned that early on. And so I became a non-point guy in the 80s. I'll tell you why. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> this, this experience shaped why I'm a non-point guy. So, when the, so, yeah, I apologize. I'm sounding a little flip. I'm being, hey, it's been great to get 100-point wines. It's, it's wonderful. It's a nice, nice pat on the back. Um, to be honest with you, I don't live and die with it because points – I don't think points. Uh, I can argue my. I can argue with myself all day on this. But anyway, <laughs> in the eighties, uh, let's see. I had um, two Chardonnays in nineteen eighty four and the nineteen eighty five. Um, I grew the grapes. I made the wines. Uh, we put it out for scores. The wine spectator scored them, and both wines, those two Chardonnays, got the exact same score in the wine spectator two years in a row. Interesting. It wasn't a hundred. It the number the magic number was sixty-eight. Okay. So, okay. So hey dad, look, dad, I got we got our new another Chardonnay, another sixty-eight points. <laughs> oh. So not good. So what happens no. is back then we'd sit down, we we would, you know, with my dad's business background, you know, we'd have our annual, you know, marketing meetings, we'd have our pre-release meetings, how are we going to sell this wine? And I remember, I there's only two or three or four of us here doing it, having these meetings. How are we going to sell this wine? But I used to start off those meetings with, okay, we're going to sell this next vintage of Merlot or Chardonnay or Cabernet. Um, let's assume we get a 68 point score. And everybody would look at me and they like, uh. how can you say that? I said, because it's happened before. So let's just assume we're going to get 68 points in the Spectator. How are we going to sell this? 1989 Cabernet. Well, gee, we better go out and hit the road. We better do some winemaker dinners. We better do some trade tastings. We better go meet trade. We better go travel and you know, ride around with a rep and call on accounts and get the word out. We better go do sales meetings and talk to the reps and tell them our story and have them taste the wine. So that's why I'm not a point guy. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> you know, listen, I, I, and, but, that, but seriously, thank you for that comment about the 100 points wines. It's been great. It's been wonderful to get that type of recognition after a lot of years of hard work. And because uh, our goal is to make really, really good wine every year, no matter what Mother Nature does. And, and that's just, um, that's some recognition of that. And that's wonderful. So we do appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, yeah, just Robert Parker, he is a harsh critic, but it's, it's funny that you say, you know, you don't like points because talking with like Doug Frost and Peter Neptune, like every, pretty much every wine professional, except for wine critics, don't like the point system at all and think it's ridiculous. So um, I just think it's funny where like consumers put, we put a lot of weight into a point on a wine, especially if somebody is listening and they're trying to learn about wine, but you just try, like you said, you try and make the best wine that you can every time with what mother nature gives you because it's such a big factor in it as well. 
Of course. And listen, those guys, I, those guys you mentioned, I know I've known those guys for years. And uh, here's the deal. We're, we're in the industry. We live and die with this every day. So yeah, we're super sensitive to points. And you know, if, if why is one wine 91 points and another wine 88 points? I mean, you're, you're actually splitting hairs in my opinion. Um, <laughs> however, however, you mentioned the consumer and you're right. The consumer doesn't live and die with vineyards and winemaking and, and scoring wine. The consumer is busy having a life. They've got a job. They got family. They got, they got to do the. They got to pay the bills. They got to do the laundry. Got to take the garbage out. Um, they don't have time, you know, to study wine and get deep down, deep down. They just want to enjoy it. They like it. So, points can be a way for them to at least start out having some idea. Of like, gee, you know. Higher scored wines are probably better quality. I can check this out, blah, blah, blah. And they build their own repertoire and hopefully they will lead them to producers, producers that they like. Um, and because usually if you find a handful of different producers you like, you can count on those wines. Whether that got at 82 or a 92, you know that producer, you know that wine, you like it year to year. So you can kind of, so points, yeah, they're important. They, they do serve a purpose because you have to have something to go on. I mean, if I'm going to go out and buy a new car, I'm going to read <laughs> consumer reports and I'm going to look who got the five stars and who got the three star. That's going to be a, a starting point for me. I get it. Yeah. So, so you know, when I say I'm not a point guy, I'm not knocking it. It's, it's a necessary, you know, it's not necessary evil. They're necessary and they're helpful. Yeah. So since the Hillside Select has received multiple 100-point ratings and has become one of the most sought-after wines in the world, because like you said, you do look at ratings of things when you're purchasing, um, out of all of your wines, not just 100-point wines, but all of your wines, which vintage is the most special to you? Oh, come on, Sarah. Really? <laughs> <laughs> which which child is your favorite? <laughs> Oh, that's easy. I've got I've got five fantastic kids, and I do have a favorite. But <laughs> okay. I do, but it it changes like every few weeks, and nobody ever knows who the favorite is. So it's a, it's a rotating, it's a rotating mantle. Um, which actually, you know, something that's you get it. That's a, that's actually a parallel because I've got a handful of vintages I just love, and uh, I love at different times for different reasons and at different ages. I, you know, I'm not trying to skirt the skirt the question. Um, I love our hillsides from um, from the early '90s on because '90-'91 is when uh, we really started to kind of confidently make really good wine every year, and it took about seven or eight years to get there. Uh, and those preceding years, they were fine, but we really were confident in what we were doing, and. Um, but there's been great years. Oh, one, uh, I think oh, two is our first, if you back to the points, 100 pointer, but oh, one was everybody's good or better. Um, but I do have one favorite, and that's, uh, that's the 99. I can say that easily. What about the 99 stands out to you as your favorite? Well, I'll tell you what stands out about 99. Um, it was kind of a late, no, it was about a normal harvest, but on October 1st, we had a lot, we had been warm and we had a lot of cab come in off the hillsides that day. I think we did at the time, it was like about 50 tons of hillside cab. At the time, 50 tons was a big day. We only have like a three man crew here crushing grapes, but 
Uh, wow. we, we got going. It came in beautiful, beautiful, beautiful fruit. Um, I, Elias and the guys were cleaning up. I checked out, I drove home at five o'clock, took a shower, put a pair of boots on, and jeans on and a sport coat, came back and to the winery and went, took my Jeep and drove up to the top of uh, one of our hillside vineyards and uh, met my bride and we got married as the sun went down. Wow. That's an amazing choice. That's an amazing choice for that wine because of that memory. That's amazing. So 99 is the best one. It was a beautiful evening. And uh, gosh, that was 20, almost 21 years ago. I love it. Wine's getting getting a little tired, but the marriage is strong. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's very good. Uh, So when I think of Schaefer, I think of amazing, big, bold, elegant, Bordeaux-style wines. But you also make Chardonnay, like we've discussed a little bit. Is Stag's Leap an ideal area, or did you decide on a cooler region in Napa for your Chardonnay? Well, in the beginning, we planted Chardonnay here because Dad thought it was important to have white wine, and he was right. He was thinking of marketing and winemaker dinners, things like that. And this is the only property we had, and this is back in the 70s when people really weren't tuned into planting the right grape in the right place uh, climate-wise. So we grew Chardonnay here. It was okay. And then um, as we expanded and I started buying some fruit from other growers, uh, I met a guy named Larry Hyde in Carneros, who was a wonderful grower, and I started buying Chardonnay from him. And oh my gosh, was it great! It was it was heads and tails better than the Chardonnay grown on this ranch. So all of a sudden, you start to realize, hey, you know, Chardonnay is better down in the Carneros where it's cooler. You know, and this ranch should be Cabernet because Cab does the best right here. So we uh, went off and uh, found a vineyard. And, and, in Carneros on about 60 acres and bought that in 1988. And we've dubbed that the Red Shoulder Ranch. So that's where our, that's where we grow Chardonnay. So it comes from a, a different locale, different, different microclimate, cooler, beautiful for Chardonnay. What about the cooler climate in Carneros is important for growing Chardonnay? Um, you get with the cooler weather, you get kind of a longer season, longer hang time. Uh, sometimes with Chardonnay, if you're in a too warm a climate, it kind of burns off fruit, burns off acid. Um, and with a cooler region, acid is probably the most important thing. You retain more natural acidity. So when we harvest the grapes, it's got that acidity. And with the white wine, um, to me, that's really important for the freshness and brightness of a white wine or Chardonnay. So... That's probably the major difference, major factor. Absolutely. So you and your father, John, both received the James Beard Award for Outstanding Wine Professionals, which is incredibly rare and an extreme honor. I'm curious, how does one even go about that process and how did that impact the winery in general? Um, to be honest with you, I really don't know how that happened. Um, we, we, um, yeah, you hear stories about the Academy Awards and lobbying and all that stuff. Um, I don't even know how it happened and neither does he, somebody, I think somebody nominated us and then, then we won and we got this letter saying you've, you've, you've won. It's like, wow, that's cool. Thank you. So it was nice. (laughs) Nice to get an award, but neither one of us ever figured out how that happened. But, uh, um, 
And uh, he was able to go back and get the award in person, which was great. Um, I had something going on with one of my kids. It was a conflict, so I didn't make that trip. But uh, it was great that he was able to uh, to receive that in person. So special night that's, for him. That's amazing. So your father, John, a World War II B-24 pilot turned established corporate executive to pioneering Schaefer Vineyards. He was, he was a family man who also spent a significant time helping countless others in the community. And he passed away last year at the age of 94. Uh, he's clearly had an amazing impact on so many. And I know that a few years ago, you and the Schaefer family paid homage to your father by creating the D9 or TD9. Can you share the story behind TD9 and what that means to you? Sure. Uh, TD9 is a, a, a wonderful red wine, red blend that uh, we created a couple of three years ago. We decided that uh, basically it was a winemaking quality decision. Uh, Elias had a throwaway comment one time when he was frustrated about something, I forget what, but he said, quote, if I didn't have to call it Merlot, I could make it a better wine, which meant... Because to be called Merlot it has to be 75% of the grapes in that bottle have to be Merlot grapes. And his point was if he could use less Merlot and more of other higher percentages of other grapes, he could make a better tasting wine. So I actually challenged him. I said, prove it. And he did. Uh, you know, we had some blind tastings of blends versus what the Merlot would be by itself. They were better wines. Since, since Schaefer's all about making the best wine we can, we said, let's, let's do this. So we created a wine called TD9, and it's, it's, uh, it's got a lot of Merlot. It's got a lot of Cab. It's got some Malbec. The blend changes every year, and that's the beauty of it because Elias is like a kid in a candy store. Uh, he can make whatever blend he wants to make the best tasting wine. So it was a great move quality-wise. With the name, uh, we wanted to have some fun. We wanted to talk about and honor dad's uh, and my mom's uh, crazy, courageous. I mean, they left the suburban Chicago life. I mean, the country club, the whole thing, the social scene. When they, when they pulled this move in 73, all their friends were like, are you crazy? Are you out of your minds? And uh, I remember seeing it make them it made them tighter pulled them together i felt like we were going out in a covered wagon to california <laughs> seek your fortune so the td9 tells the story of um in 73 dad went from riding commuter trains in chicago to driving a td9 tractor in our vineyard here in napa valley so we got out here there's this old td9 tractor that came with the ranch and that's what he drove for about five or six years so he was the farmer I love that. And then we're running short on time here, but I want to talk a little bit about your book, A Vineyard in Napa. You co-wrote that with Andy Dembski, who's also at Schaefer Vineyards. And it really tells that story of your dad leaving a very successful career and also his time fighting in World War II. Just from the very beginning, can you talk a little bit about a vineyard in Napa and the inspiration behind sharing that story? Well, it was a lot of fun. We, uh, we, I think Dad, wanted to, Dad wrote a short book a few years before, and then 
Uh, we start kicking around the idea of writing a book, and we think about writing one together. Um, we do it in his voice or my voice. And I think, um, I think Andy and I overruled him and said, uh, I want to be at my voice because I want to have the opportunity to say things about my dad that he wouldn't say himself, uh, cause he was a pretty special guy. So, um, it was a lot of fun, you know, and dad, you know, we, dad and I were weighing in on all the stories and, uh, uh, you know, Andy would write some, I'd, I'd write some, I'd edit, we'd go back and forth, you know, dad, you know, dad would remember something we I'd forgotten. And, uh, it basically tells the story of, uh, of what it was like to be here. Well, actually what it does, it tells the shaper story from the early seventies through, you know, 90 or so or to the current day, but it, it also, the Shaper story kind of mirrors what was going on in Napa Valley for that same time frame, those 30 years. Um, so a lot, the book kind of weaves the Shaper story, but it kind of references what was going on in Napa Valley. You know, the move from most of the grapes going to the wine, to the, uh, the co-op winery, to much more, a greater number of wineries being built and producing wine, you know, and the level of quality, the type of distribution becoming getting Napa Valley wines on the world stage, you know, our selling wine, our shaper selling wines to 30 or 40 countries, you know, Napa Valley is doing that also, you know, back in the old days that didn't happen. Uh, when we moved here, there were 20 wineries in Napa Valley. Now there's over four or 500. So it kind of, it, it's almost like it's the shaper story, but it's also kind of the Napa Valley story for that 30 year period. So that's, it was fun. I love it. I'll definitely be including a link to Schaefer Vineyards as well as a vineyard in Napa in the description of the podcast. But uh, Doug, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for taking some time to tell the fantastic story. It's it's I know it's one of like uh, struggles, but it's one of triumph. And I just love that your parents had the the guts to follow their dreams and leave behind a very successful career and really build something amazing for, for your family and for the world and Napa Valley. Well, thank you, Sarah. It was great to chat with you. Enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please leave us a rating and a review. It would mean the world. Also, be sure to share our show with a friend. You can follow us on Instagram at Everyday Food and Wine, as well as my personal Instagram at Sarah underscore Faraday. Please also be sure to follow our incredible guest at Schaefer Vineyards. That's S-H-A-F-E-R-V-I-N-E-Y-A-R-D-S. Also, please join us for live wine tasting on my personal Instagram page where we sit down every single week and explore new things that the wine world has to offer as well as a ton of wines that you definitely want to try for yourself. Stay tuned for our next episode where I sit down with one of the straightest shooting guys you'll hear from in the business, critically acclaimed winemaker and owner of Booker Vineyards in Paso Robles, Eric Jensen. 